Psalm 38, verses 1 through 22. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My singing, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, we're really glad you're here. And we, for the next couple of weeks, uh, we will be in the Psalms. Uh, and so uh, our, our typical way of operating when we think about preaching uh, is we work through books. And uh, we're not super creative. And so when we're not in a series, like we're about to start First uh, John, we're going to work through the book of First John. And we've entitled that First John. And so, um, you know, you'll like that. Uh, but when we're not in a series, we uh, typically default to uh, the Psalms. And the first, you know, there, there's several books of Psalms, 150 chap, you know, chapters altogether. But there's several different books of Psalms. And the first one deals mostly with lamenting. Like, what do I do when life just isn't right? And uh, it's actually, it's not something that's real common in, in the modern American church. Like, we like the Psalms that end with expression and joy, and it's happy, and it's resolved. And yet, so many of the Psalms aren't resolved at all. Like, they're not resolved at all. Like, we, we kind of end with this one, where we end with, God, you are my salvation, but yet, like, we're like, what about the, the, the open wounds and the festering sores and, you know, all that stuff that was going on? It's not necessarily resolved. And I just, that's what faith is all about. That's what the miracle of God in us, the hope of joy and glory, is when my life is still undone, when I am still uncertain, what does it look like for God to indwell the life of a believer? And I'm not just talking like happy thoughts. Like that's a part of us, like disciplining our soul to think right. I'm talking about the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity, Almighty God, who whispers to you, you're not forgotten. And that's what the Psalms do for us. 
And so we're here for another couple weeks. And in this psalm, we see all this language. Like, look down at the psalm. If you have a Bible, look at it. We see all this language that deals with, like, the failing of the body. And so there's an academic way of looking at this where uh, people say, hey, this is a psalm for, for people who are chronically sick. Like it, and it's certainly appropriate for that. I mean, I don't agree with that. It's a very academic way because you see phrases like this. Like you see, look at verse 3 uh, and 7. You see phrases like soundness in my flesh, wholeness. Or, you know, you, you see in the end of verse 3, health in my bones. Or verse 5, my wounds stink and fester. Verse 11, plague. I'm plagued. Um, and then even in verse 10, failing strength. And so why this would certainly apply to someone who is suffering illness. Someone who, uh, no matter what it seems like they do, it just doesn't seem to get better. It festers. It, their strength is failing. This would certainly give hope to say, you're not the only one. It's not because God is like decided he doesn't like you anymore. And even when he's bringing that, and God does do that in his economy, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about that even more next week. You know, even if he's bringing that, it's for your hope and for your joy. And one day, one day when you see everything that he sees, one day in eternity when you can see it all, you'll actually agree with him. You'll actually say, you were right. And that doesn't mean you have to fake it now, but it means that there is a time when you'll see the wisdom and goodness of God and you'll regret all the times you doubted. You'll regret all the times that you had accusation against him. This certainly applies to the suffering of sickness. Uh, Kenzie and I, when we were first married, we, um, we had a dog, um, no kids, and, um, and I came home. I had just, I was working with students, and I had just made this proclamation because everybody was getting sick and throwing up, and uh, like some little plague was coming through. And I just made this pro- proclamation of like, man, I can't remember the last time I threw up. And so, uh, horrible, horrible decision. And so I was, you know, I was studying, you know, doing stuff, whatever you pastors do. Um, and I, I was doing that, and I was working with one of our interns. She was out in front, and we were talking. I made that proclamation to her, and about 4 o'clock rolled around and had this moment of like, oh, something's not right. Like that feeling that kind of, it starts in your gut, and you kind of feel it in your throat, and you try to swallow it down, like maybe it'll go away, but it's like, I'm not going away, I'm coming out. And so I'm like, literally, I'm talking to her, lining stuff out for Sunday, I'm like, I gotta go. And so I just leave, and I get home in time to make it to the bathroom. Kinsey's getting ready, because uh, it's senior night, basketball senior night, and so she's getting ready. I kind of come busting through the door, only one bathroom, very small bathroom, kind of turn this way, the sink's here, the, the toilet's here, turn Turn this way to puke all over the wall. And, uh, and Kinsey's just standing there. And she kind of goes motherly. Like she wants to help. And so she kind of is like, hey, I want to help. I want to be left alone. And so I'm like hugging the porcelain t- pony. And I'm just hugging it. And I'm like, she's like, can I help? I'm like, oh, you can clean up the wall. I mean, and so I'm just kind of hugging it. And she's like, maybe I shouldn't go. I'm like, no, no, you should go. You should go. I don't have hair. You can't hold my hair. Just go. And so I mean, I push her out the door. Like, I don't want people, like, you know, messing with me. I just, man, give me the bowl, and I'll turn on the TV. I was about to say Netflix, but you had to mail Netflix away. Like, they got mailed to you, and so that didn't help. And so, I mean, I was just like, she leaves. I get cleaned up. I'm so thirsty. I'm like, if I drink, I'm going to throw up. But I'm like, I could also die from dehydration. And so I would drink, and I'd throw up, and I would drink, and I'd throw up, and I would drink, and I'd throw up. It's hard for me to get a clue on this. I get it. And I suddenly have the thought of, like, How could she leave me? 
I could die here. Like there's something about sickness, like when your body is not in control, that you feel isolated, you feel alone. And there's something about a community that when someone gets sick, we isolate them. We make them alone. This could certainly apply to that. But that would be an academic understanding of just putting it in a small category. The liturgical understanding, meaning the worshipful understanding throughout history, this has always been applied as what's called a penitential psalm, a penance psalm. Uh, what do I do when my sin has found me out? What do I do when I am plagued with guilt and remorse and I'm actually at a place where I'm done making excuses? I actually agree with God that this is a problem. And it brings questions like, I mean, we're actually like, I, I think we're on hollow ground here. We get to eavesdrop in this really intimate moment, this really beautiful, intimate, hard Hard God's grace, like the violent grace of God. We see this intimate moment of David when he is expressing sorrow over sin that he did. You know, there's seven penitential psalms. The most famous of them is Psalms 51 when he um, is expressing the sin of a, adultery with Bathsheba and murder to cover it up. But like, this is hollow ground. Like, I just want to ask this. Have you ever been guilty and known it. Like you stop making excuses. You say I am the relationship problem here. H- have you ever like looked at your excuses. And had a moment of clarity just to damn them. To stop picking them up. Because you know they haven't worked yet. Just to stop picking them up and say no they don't fit. That's not true. Have you ever in your relationships just said this. I'm the problem. And I just want to like I I just want to give you a clue like if you want a a deep intimate marriage if both spouses will look at the other and say my sin is the biggest risk to this marriage if both people feel that way and you leave repentance you'll have it See, what happens is, like, my sin is kind of this vague, hollow ground where I'm not for sure, I mean, everyone's a sinner. And my spouse's sin can become very detailed list. But, man, if you can say my sin is the most dangerous thing to this relationship, it'll happen. What does it look like to be penitent? What does it look like to be repentant? What does it look like to take the guilt that you feel and see it as kindness from God that will lead you into repentance? That's what Psalms 38 is all about. And so while we look at this, um, we want to see the central truth of Psalm 38. So the central truth is that when we are haunted by the guilt of sin, we are close to the grace of God. Like when we are haunted by it, we are actually closer to the grace of God than we ever dare. We think we're far away because we think we have to fix this and then meet him on like a higher level ground. But we are close to the grace of God when we are haunted by our guilt. And it also teaches that God knows how to walk us out in the aftermath of our sin. And so we're going to arrange Psalms 38 really with three questions, um, and it just helps us kind of put it to really focus, and certainly it says more than these things, but 
you know, in the first five verses, it's going to tell us the problem. And so the problem is God's anger against my sin. Like, what is the problem? God has anger for my sin. The second that we're going to look at is, like, what does that problem feel like? And it feels like guilt. I'm guilty. It plagues us. It encompasses us. And that's going to be really, verses 1 through 14, we're just going to look at the, when we get there, man, we're just going to go bam, 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 bam. It's going to be really fast. So if you're taking notes, you should just give up right then. And so then... We're going to look at the end, like, what do we do? And the best way that, I mean, just the words I put to it is we practice repentance. We never do it perfect, but we practice repentance. And so I, I want to pray for us, and we are going to rock and roll. Uh, God, Lord, we love you, and, uh, and Lord, we do need help. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures, that they would come real to us. Lord, that this wouldn't be an academic exercise, but that... Uh, the scriptures would be unpacked, but they would find home in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to own sin. I feel guilt because I did it. I feel that you would give us courage to lay down excuses. That we wouldn't hide behind them. They are not sufficient to save us. And Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of repentance, like we would feel in all areas of our life, and we would feel emboldened, that we would embrace the truth of the gospel, which is, man, we are far worse than we ever dreamed. Only the death of God is going to fix us, but we'd, we'd also embrace the truth of the gospel, that Jesus loves us, he was glad to do it, and he has a place for us. And if he has a place for us, that means he has restoration for us. So God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first question, what's the problem? And uh, we're going to say it like this, God's anger set against my sin. And so the, the, the text is really, really clear. Like we see that God's anger is happening because of his sin. And so let's just highlight that. Like in verse 1, it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Which really what he's saying is not just in your anger, not just in your wrath. Like, I see that that's going to come, but don't let that be the only thing. And it, it goes on, verse 2, it says, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand came down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh. And then these are the words that are really important and what follows. Because of your indignation. And so the words we see right there, we see anger, wrath, indignation. The problem is God's anger is set against David. And the question is why? And so keep going in verse 3. It says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. And then you could infer because again, because my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds sink and fester because of my foolishness. And so the words you see there, sin, iniquity, foolishness. And all of these are coming after the word because. Like David feels God's anger against him like a heavy hand or pointed arrow striking against him. And it's because his sin is like a sweeping burden that's drowning him. And so like that's just for a second. Like, let's, let's focus on those words. Because. And then what follows him. And so the first one, like, the problem is because of indignation. Like, verse 3, it says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And we don't use that word a whole lot. 
Like, that's not a real common word. Like, how's your day? Man, it's full of indignation. I mean, we just don't use that a lot. But David feels the press of God's anger because of indignation. And the question is, why? You know, it goes on, it's because of sin. Like, you see that in verse 3? He said, David feels God's anger pressing his life because of his sin. Like, we see those words, indignation and sin. And, and we wonder, like, God is pressing against him because there's sin in his life. And the question is, like, is he doing it because he's just like a, a mean kid who wants to smite ants with a magnifying glass and burn off their antenna? Like, we accuse God of that. God is not pressing David's life just to cause pain. God is pressing David's life because there is sin and indignation in it. And he has to like, like more like a surgeon. He's going to have to apply pain, but he's trying to remove it. It's deadly to him. And so, I mean, make no mistake, like we see an anger in God. But we also see a love in God. God refuses to just let you go on your way and destroy yourself. And so he starts to press against your life. And so he presses because of indignation. He presses because of sin. He presses because of foolishness. Like David feels the press of God's anger because of foolish, stubborn, conscious, and willful sin. Verse 5, it says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. You know, we often, we think of foolishness as kind of, like silly or gullible you know like oh man they have a good heart you know they just they're just kind of dumb you know like right now like literally right now you are thinking of someone you're thinking of someone man they you know and the words that we use to describe it is like man bless their heart you know like oh man just bless their heart and listen if you're not thinking of someone right now someone is thinking about you right now man just bless their heart and so a lot of times when we see foolishness, that's what we think about. Like, man, they're just, they just mess up. They, just, they don't have enough wisdom, but they have a good heart. Uh, the book of Proverbs, it talks about five different fools. And so, I mean, and we're, we're not going to talk about all of them. We're going to talk about two, kind of too extreme. But it talks about, so the Old Testament has several wor- words for, for fool. And so, I mean, like, like Proverbs and Mr. T, they all pity the fool, all five of them. And so, like, what we see is we see a certain type of fool. And this is not the simple fool. Like, the Proverbs talks about a simple fool over and over. And it talks about it, the, the actual word, it's pithy. And it talks about this fool as someone who's just invulnerable. They, um, they just kind of don't know better. And they just kind of take people at their word and circumstances at their word. And they just kind of mess up all the time. And you have to protect that person. And so there is that kind of fool. Or they just, man, bless their heart. This one, a, a lot of commentaries for this word, they call him the silly fool. And I think it's actually kind of a little bit of a misnomer to be a silly fool. It's probably more of like a perverse fool. The word here, it's used to describe someone who, um, gosh, man, they despise wisdom. They mock back when they're found guilty. They're quarrelsome or they're licentious. Like it describes not a good-hearted person who is just messing up. It describes someone who wants to twist. They know what they're supposed to do in their mind, but in their heart, they don't care. And so David, he says, listen, I know this is because of my willful, conscious sin. 
This is not me just messing up. This is because I knew the right thing to do. I knew what God wanted. I even knew God's heart. And in my heart, I was perverse. I don't care. I don't care. And I walked into it. And he's like, I know God's anger is laying against me because of my willful, deliberate, obstinate, perverse sin that I do in spite of the consequences. You know, it's when you sit and you have the moment of temptation and like it's raging all around you and you know what you need to do. You know you need to get out. You know you need accountability. You know you need to walk away. You know. But you just don't care. David is owning. He says, listen, the problem is God's anger pressing against my life because of my sin and it's willful. I know. I know what the problem is. And now, what does it feel like? Like, what does it feel like? Most of this text, like the imagery, it's trying to describe if God's anger is trying to press like sin out of your life, what does it feel like? And man, we are just going to go like, it feels like guilt. It feels guilty. And like right now, if you don't know what that feels like, I don't know what you feel like. I mean, I have no idea. Listen to the descriptions, and we're just going to start over. And so in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is like saying, not just your anger. Like, I need the love of God also. Verse 2, for your arrows have sunk into me. Have you ever felt the sting of guilt jabbing in your soul? Like, guilt has a way of delivering sharp jabs that remind you of an act or reality that you want to forget. You have moments of just kind of forgetting that that was what happened. And then all of a sudden you see something. You remember, oh yeah, I did that. Guilt can be sharp. Or verse 2, it says, and your hand has come down on me. Have you ever felt the weight of guilt laid upon you like a heavy, hard, pressing hand? It has a way of weighing everything down. It has a way of making simple acts almost unbearable. Or, or verse 3, it keeps going. It says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of sin. No soundness, no health. Like the Hebrew in that, it means it, means it lacks completion. When it says no soundness, it says it's just not quite all there. And like guilt has a way of taking a little from everything. It doesn't stay in one category. It just kind of reaches over and pulls from everything. Verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Over my head. Weight. Too heavy. Guilt has a way of building. And it starts off something that you can stay afloat and you can manage. And it gets heavier and heavier. And it becomes desperate. I'm sinking you know, if you look at verse 5, it says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Guilt lingers and festers. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Verse 6, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. You know, classically when people mourn, they, they dress in dark clothes. Because that, that color, it fits the feeling. In Hebrews, it literally just means to darken. 
And so this is talking about the, the way that God's anger presses against our sin. It feels like guilt, like I need to own it. It feels like a darkness and a bow down, a prostration. I can't get up. Verse 7, it says, for my sides are filled with burning. It's talking about side stitches, like, like I, I'm, I'm lacking endurance. I don't know how much longer I could do this. Like, if you don't know what that feels like, like you're running and pain in your sides, you play too many video games. You need to run. I can't keep going. Verse 7, it goes on, and listen to these phrases. And there is no soundness of my flesh. We see that again. No completion. It takes from everything. And I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. Like, are you kidding me? None of that describes you. It's like my world's getting dark around me. It's like this is all I can see. My heart is tumultuous. Like it's, it's, it's messy. And then it adds to these kind of descriptions, a loneliness, verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. And then verse 12, like enemies come out to say, look what happened to you. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. See, guilt has a way of poisoning us and driving us away from community. Guilt also has a way of us like pushing people out of community. You know, guilt has a way, if we're not for someone, for us to look at them and be like, yeah, see what happened, you got it. Look, you get what you got. Like that, you deserve that. Guilt has a way of tearing at the community of, of this world and the community of the church. You want to hide. You want to be dark. You don't want to see the gaze of God upon you or the gaze of others. And yet that's what you need. Verse 13, it says, but I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like the man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. Guilt has a way of numbing everything. I don't know what to say. No matter what you say to me, I can't really hear it. You know, someone's pleading for your life. Like they're literally pleading, you've got to stop this. And you hear like they're trying to take from you. It has a way of just numbing. Like, I mean, this is David. This is me. I think it's you too. Like, like guilt is sharp, sudden, heavy, inundating. It pulls apart. It weighs down. It festers, groans. It fatigues. It darkens. Like, oh, if God would just save us from this. And what I'm telling you is that it is because God's anger is pressed against your life because he's trying to remove sin from your life. It's not because God is mean and vindictive. He is not trying to burn off your antennas. He's not that mean kid. But he's pressing you. And so we have an idea of what's the problem. The problem ultimately is God's anger laid against my sin. What does it feel like? Man, it feels like guilt. This is so encompassing of how it hits. You know, I mean, if we like, 
a, a helpful way. So helpful hint. Like, how do we read the scriptures? Like, we would read those descriptions and we would say, is any of those descriptions true of me now? Is there guilt in my life? Which would least, what do we do? And I, I don't want to hold you in suspense. David's going to help us. What do we do? And it's we practice repentance. And, you know, true repentance, it, re, repentance, not repentance. Uh, true repentance involves confession, uh, walking away, waiting, acceptance, all these different things. And some of us are better at some aspects of it. Some of us are worse. Some are good, so we fake aspects of it. And the idea is that repentance hits us deep. And we know when repentance has worked because things start to lift in our soul, although they might not change in the circumstances of our life. And so you can fake it to me, but you can't fake it to God, and you can't fake it to you. But what do we do? We practice repentance. And so a couple phrases. You know, in verse 15 and 16, like I want to put some things together to show what it looks like. And so practicing repentance, you, you know you're doing it when there's less demanding and more waiting. Like I say practice because all of repentance is less than perfect. Like it's back and forth. It's two steps forward, one step back. And then like the floor drops out. You got to start all over. I mean, that's what it looks like. And I know I see this in my life. David definitely saw it in his life. And so look at this in verse 15, less demanding, more waiting. But for you, O Lord, do I wait? You, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Like David is saying, like, I'm waiting for you. He's saying, who else is there? Who, who else can help me? Like, this is like this muck in my life that I can't even put a real good name. And so I'm just in a place where I just wait like he stops making all these demands and then he forgets and he makes another demand. I mean, you know, so this is two steps forward, one step back. Like, I mean, he's like, man, I don't, I just need to wait for you. Like who else could fix this? I need you to fix me. What else is there out there? And then he kind of goes, but it would be helpful if you remember that one thing I asked in verse 12, like those guys are out to get me. If you'd help me with that. So verse 16, he says, For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. Waiting takes an incredible amount of discipline. You know, it's almost, and I could be reading this in, but it's almost like he was like, listen, I will wait for you. Only an answer from you. But by the way, man, those people, they are, they are messed up. It takes hard work to be still. We practice repentance with less demanding and more waiting. We practice repentance by admitting the reality and accepting the consequences. Look at verse 17. These phrases, like, they're, they're actually, they're really fun for me because we get to unpack them. So it says, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquities. Like, we've dealt with that phrase before, but I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquities. And so first, let's start with the last one. I confess my iniquities. David is admitting, like, conscious and premeditative sin. Like he's not saying, like there's different, like there's several different words in Hebrew that describe sin and they all have a different slant. And so this word um, is not like a, a means, like there's, there's a way to understand sin that's called just missing the mark. 
It really develops in the New Testament, but it exists in the Old Testament. The word is chata, but it means this. It's like, man, I just, I'm trying, I'm not trying to do wrong, and I just kind of miss it. I just kind of blow it. This is not what David's saying. That's usually translated just as sin. This is something very different. He uses the word ava, which is almost always translated iniquity, a word we don't use a lot. But he's communicating, like he's confessing his sin is not accidental. It's a distortion. I knew the right thing to do, and I didn't care. It goes with the word that we talked about, foolishness, the word for fool. Like he's saying, like, I confess it. I don't have excuses anymore. I just lay him down. I knew what I was doing, and I did it. I am also, before we have kids, not long before we have kids, Kenzie and I were in Warrensburg, and we were doing youth in college, and um, we were pregnant with Quinn, and we were, like, real pregnant. Like, this is about to happen. We had bought a house that uh, we were renovating. Um, like, it was actually given up by the builder, and so we bought it from the bank, and uh, it, had, it was unfinished inside. And so we put floors in, and we started painting. And so, like, I can't even remember if we had inside doors at this moment. Like, you know, it was just us. Like, what do we have to hide, you know? And so, I mean, we didn't have, like, it was really undone. We might have had doors, but I just remember we were about to have a baby, and we didn't have a crib or a chest of drawers, much less we hadn't painted the room. And, like, this didn't seem like a big deal to me, you know? But Kinsey was mounting pressure. I mean, I was like, hey, we can just put that kid in, you know, drawer. I mean, not shut it, leave it open. But, I mean, it'll be safe, cozy. And so I came home from work, and Kinsey was cooking, and she comes out, and she just kind of is like, hey, I'm getting really nervous. You know, like, we're about to have this baby and the room's not ready. We don't have a place to put the baby's clothes. Much, I mean, it's just piled up. Much less a place to put the baby. And so we were looking for cribs and and dressers on Craigslist and it just wasn't working and it was mounting. And I'm like, well, babe, you know, we, we, let's just keep looking. And she's like, I am looking. Maybe we need to buy new. And, like, my cheapness came out really fast. Like, man, I was going to be a lot of money. Um, And I was like, I said something under my breath to the extent of, yeah, I bet you're looking really hard. And, like, shots fired, you know. I mean, so it was this moment of, like, okay. And she looked at me, and I realized that she understood everything I was trying to communicate. All in that phrase, I was trying to communicate, man, you are being, like, snobby and like unwise and like you want to spend all this money on that even though i had spent almost that exact amount on my motorcycle which i i drive like 15 times a year but our baby is going to sleep in this every night god willing every night for three years but like it just didn't seem balanced to me you know she got the message loud and clear she just turned around and walked i was into the kitchen i was sitting there and like i'm like oh my gosh I'm in big trouble. And so I start to work up this uh, protect me apology. And so I coined that word, but you, you all have been using it. You know, the protect me apology. The apology that comes out like, oh, baby, what, why are you mad? Oh, you thought I meant that? No, I am such a good-willed nature guy. I would never mean that. I can't believe you're so dumb you would think that. Now, you don't say the protect me apology like that, but that's what you're saying. And it was this moment of clarity. Now, she got the message that I was trying to say loud and clear. What if I just acknowledged that there's this like mean, spiteful, kind of like teenager inside of my soul that actually what I was feeling, you want to know what I was feeling? 
I felt like I'd let my wife down. I let her run with this ball. I mean, and, and she's got a lot going on. She was working part-time, growing a baby, taking care of me. That's a lot. I felt like I had let her down. I felt like I had failed. I don't like the way that feels. So somehow I have to push it back on her of, well, it's not my fault. It's your fault. And so I had this, this incredible moment of clarity. Like, what if I was just honest? And then I immediately dismissed that moment of clarity. Like, that wouldn't work out well. But like, it was like God was working. And so I get up and I felt, I remember this so clearly. I felt like there was a load of bricks on my shoulder. I get up and I go in and I say something effective. Gosh, I'm so sorry, kids. I just, I feel like when you're saying that, I've just let you down. And uh, I, I, I need more leadership on this. It's not fair. I've made you do this. And, um, and so I use my words to cut you. And there's still kind of this just immature, spiteful teenager inside my soul. Maybe it's because I work with them, try to blame them. But I'm like, it's still there. I'm sorry. Will you give us just a little bit more time? Let's just pray and let's just try to find something. You know, and she just kind of went back to cooking dinner. You know what happened right after that? Awkward, silent dinner. Like, it didn't get a lot better. But we both look at that moment as really just a, a changing time in our relationship. What if we just repented to each other? What would happen? Like, it started something different. Because it was true. She knew what I said. And, and so what we have is David confesses his iniquity. I meant to do it. The next phrase, look at this, ready to fall. Like David is acknowledging either one of two things, his tendency to fall in this area, his tendency to trip up, or like ready to accept the consequences of tripping up. Like that ready to fall, my pain is ever before me. It's a really difficult phrase. Like, the, the, the word that's used for fall, it actually means to like limp or stumble or to be lame. And so it's either saying like past tense, I stumbled and I fell. And now I know you can forgive, but I know that there's some reaping and sowing and there might be like consequences. There might be relational consequences that I have to live with. Like sometimes there's just consequences. You know, I mean, think about David. Like, think about Bathsheba and Uriah. And so, if, I mean, if you're unfamiliar with that, you, you can read up on it. But David steals one of his friend's wives. Uriah the Hittite was one of his mighty 40 men. I mean, like, he was inside the, the, the sanctum. And so he takes his wife, and then Bathsheba gets pregnant, and so he has to cover it up. And so he tries to trick Uriah to sleep with his wife. And so if it's that moment of like, man, this kid looks a lot like you, David. Like, that's weird. I mean, I mean, so he tries to trip him up. It doesn't work. So he organizes his death. He conspires his murder. You don't think, and so God, you know, Nathan comes, a prophet comes, like, hey, listen, there's a sheep, and this guy had a lot of sheep, this guy had one sheep, and this guy ate that sheep, and he's like, man, let's kill this guy. He's like, you're the guy, aha! I mean, that's a horrible moment for you. And he's like, but it's not sheep. You took this man's wife. And so there's this confession and this, this repentance. You don't think he and Bathsheba had, like, relationship, like, problems that kind of carried out? I mean, you don't think that was like, there's some difficulty here? Like, you don't think, like, I mean, what happened was their son died. You don't think at the birth of their other son there was remorse and regret and brokenness. You don't think there was ever a moment where she accidentally called him Uriah and then a moment, oh yeah, you killed him. I mean, you don't think there was moments like that? Maybe he's saying, man, there's going to be consequences and God saved me from them, whatever they are. 
They're mine. Or maybe it was this tendency to follow by acknowledging his tendency to follow in this area. He's saying, Jesus, I am sorry. I keep stumbling here. This isn't the first time. It isn't just missing the mark kind of stumble. It is the active iniquity, twisting and distorting kind of stumble. See, we practice repentance by admitting the reality of our sin and humbly accepting the consequences of our conscience deliberate choices. And practice is hard. Practice is meant to push you to the limit so you can find further limits. Practice is meant to break you down so you rely on your teammates. Practice is meant to fatigue you. Practice is meant to strengthen you. But the hardest part of practice is showing up. It's the hardest part. I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. And this is important when we think about repentance and community. We need to show up. So we, we practice repentance we confess our iniquities we just say man i'm I'm ready to fall there's consequences god i I trust you or if this is a tendency it could mean both both are true if this is a tendency god i just need help we show up we also practice repentance by being sorry look at verse 18 i confess my iniquity i'm sorry for my sin all of it. Have you ever been sinned against? And stepping back in that relationship, you know, people start off with excuses. Well, I mean, I did this because any, you know, the, the protect me apology, any reasonable person would do this because this situation and blah, blah, blah. It's not my fault, you know. I mean, all these different things. I mean, I was, you know, my parents and blah, 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 all this different stuff. And at the end of all of that, like there's this true moment of, sorry I did this this is a reality that we have to unpack that we have to wrestle I'm sorry I wish I could undo it I wish there was something that I could like beat into submission and kill but there's not it's in me I'm sorry like what a healthy way to pray God I'm just sorry I keep doing I'm sorry like it's simple but it's when you've given up all excuses and you've just owned it, it's the only words that really convey it. And we abuse those words. And so sometimes those words mean nothing to people anymore. But we need to fight for their meaning. David says, I'm sorry. So, I mean, I know everyone in the room has experienced that both in the first person and in the second person. And like in the third person, I mean, the moment of like, I need to just say, I'm sorry. I need to hear from them, I'm sorry. And this is actually a really dangerous moment for us. Like it brings us to a moment for us to bring all of this together. See, God is angry 
and he's pressing against my sin and it feels like guilt and it plagues in all these different areas. It numbs, it pulls apart, it presses down. It is heavy, it is sharp at times. I mean, it is like this blob inside of me that I just can't escape. It steals from everything. Like we wanna avoid that. We wanna walk away from it and we need to turn around and face it and look to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. Or look to others and say, I'm sorry. Because a lot of times we think of that as the enemy, and yet the Bible describes it as that is the kindness of God. You see, David knows that God's anger is pressing against him because of his sin, verses 1 through 3 and verse 5. David knows it's because of the inescapable guilt that he feels. I mean, that's the description, 1 through 14. David is sorry, and he shows up for repentance. He doesn't do it perfectly. But as a Christian, we've got to discipline ourselves to see that as the kindness of God because the Bible tells us it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Hear the word of God, Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? That is the sin that David is confessing. I've presumed upon it over and over. I knew it was wrong, but I twisted it, so it was okay. Or forbearance and patience. God has been patient And I actually just felt like maybe he was approving because I was getting away with it. And I've created stupid ideas of why it's okay. Stupid excuses. I am presuming on the riches of God's kindness and his patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If you're haunted by guilt... Can you see this is God's violent grace against you to press you to save you? Or is it just the enemy that needs to be numbed and destroyed? The second warning is a warning that we find in Hebrews 12. And it's it's a warning that if we continue to ignore God's kindness, we continue to to look at him and say, man, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. The danger is one day he might leave you alone. And so in Hebrews 12, just listen, be still and listen. Hebrews 12, verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means that there's a way that the grace of God can be before us and we can, we can not obtain it. And so the grace of God is described in this chapter is like God pressing your life and it hurts and there's guilt and it kind of is overwhelming at times. That's God's kindness. And so it says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then it says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled and so like right there if we're asking like what is this bitterness like it's a hardness like it's a conviction that i'm gonna hold to these excuses even though i know they're hollow and they don't work i'm gonna hide behind them it's a hardness of no god you can press and i'm just gonna wait you out i'm not gonna give in i'm not gonna be the problem what happens to a marriage when both people do that i'm not gonna be the problem It does not go well. It ends. And so like it's saying this bitterness 
And I think a way to understand it is a commitment to my excuses, a commitment to my protect me apology. And then it goes on and it gives us kind of almost like a history lesson. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And you know, right, right there, it's just using an example and that sexual morality has a way of having all kinds of excuses and all kinds of like darkness that shrouds us of why it's okay and hardens our heart. A commitment to our excuses. And then it says, or a unholy like Esau. And so then it talks about Esau who sold his birthright for a single mill. This is a story out of Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, Esau comes in from hunting and he's like famished and hungry. And he looks at his brother, Jacob, and he says, listen, I'm starving to death. What are you cooking? And he's like, man, I'm cooking soup. And he says, listen, give me the soup lest I die. He's like, what are you going to give me? Which is not a real brotherly thing to do, but it happened. And he goes, man, I'll give you anything. I'll give you my birthright. And so what happened in that moment was he looked, the birthright was a covenantal promise of God that had far more worth for the rest of his days and far more worth for all of eternity. And he looked at it and he looked at the pleasure from a single meal, a single moment. And he said, man, what are the promises of God for me? What is eternity for me? I need to take care of me right now. And he sold He exchanged in that moment a future pleasure of the covenantal love of God and the promises for him. He said they were light and momentarily and not important compared to what I need and want right now. And so there's a danger. Verse 17, for you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. See, there's a danger that we can take advantage of God's forbearance and his kindness and his patience. And we can say, no, leave me alone. No, leave me alone. No, leave me alone. And then one day when you want it, he may not have, you may not have the ability to repent any longer. You might, you might be able to muster up tears of remorse and sadness for the circumstances that you're left with. You might be able to fake it and get your like worship cringe on. And when you sing, you might be able to fool your city group. You might be able to do all of that. But you know there's something missing on the inside. Like This is a profound danger that if you're in an area saying, no, God, no, God, no, God, what if he says, okay. And like we want to, like, if you're, you know, more reforming theology, you want to, like, try to fit it out. Well, that doesn't work. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I just know that the writer of Hebrews says there is a danger of stiff-arming God that one day you may not be able to repent. And so what do we do? If that's me, what do I do? Verse 21. Listen. Lord, do not forsake me, O Lord, O God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. See, sometimes in overcoming the feeling of guilt, we just don't know where to take it. And as a symbol of bringing it to Jesus, I'm asking you to bring it here. Every week at the end of service, we do communion because 
we want to be reminded that this is all about what Jesus has done for us. I'm not in because I beat my sin. I'm in because Jesus absorbed my sin. On the cross, his body was broken apart because the wrath of God was heavy. On the cross, his blood was spilled because the wrath of God was expensive. And he did it so that you could bring your guilt to him. And so just like as a whole body learning thing, we walk forward and we don't try to make everything right. We just bring what we have. And if you have a place of guilt, we can bring it here and we can say what David said in the famous penitent psalm, Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God. What does God want? What is useful for him? Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. If you're a Christian, man, we have, bring it here. It's the only thing you bring to the table. And he says, it's valuable. I can change it. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Lord, um, we, uh, I think I just want to say this, like, would we be honest that just to say this, I'm tired. I'm tired of a commitment to my excuses and I just need help. I'm tired. And just in honesty, Bring it to the communion table just as a reminder that at the cross, it's actually the only thing I bring. I bring need to the cross. I bring my brokenness to the cross. And so the movements that we have is uh, communion's always hectic for us. Come down the right side of the aisle. Go back on the right side of the aisle. Um, and what we do is we start on the bread side and we tear a piece of bread away. And then we dip it either into the wine or the grape juice. Uh, the wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice is in the glassware. And we do this that we might remember that everything has already been paid for. We can be children of God, not on our merit, on his merit, but we need to respond in repentance. That's how we grow. And so there, there's, there's a couple other movements. There might be a movement where you need to just say sorry to someone. Like you need to maybe sit this one out and just say, man, I just, I'm, before I take communion, I just want to tell them I'm sorry or there might be something in your life that you just want prayer for. Like, I hope that's a regular thing. We'll have people in the back with um, lanyards on, and they can just pray for you. Tell them as little or as much as you want, and they're going to pray for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life to give courage and humility. They're going to pray that God would save relationships because of past sin. They're going to pray for repentance that goes deep. And then the final, if you're not for sure about Jesus... We're going to have some prayers and some thoughts up on the screen for you to wrestle with. And we ask you just to respect this and sit right there. And um, if you're worried about being singled out or being seen, don't. People will be moving at different times. It'll be kind of chaotic. And then during communion, we ask you to come worship. We serve a great God who loves to forgive and to restore. It is the message of the gospel. Father, we love you. I pray you be with us as we move. In Jesus' name, amen.